Hey, it's Bill Simmons. I have some good news for you. The hottest take. It's back. Oh, yeah. Monday through Thursday, four times a week, you hear from me, Chris Ryan, Sean Fantasy, Mallory Rubin, Wazdeen Lambrey, Van Lathan, Julie Lippman, many other ringer staffers. You get one take, you got to defend it to the death. Sports takes, pop culture takes, food takes, airplane takes. Oh, yeah. It's coming back. First episode drops August 29th. Welcome to Talk the Thrones. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com. And joining me this week, as always, is Ringer senior staff writer Joanna Robinson, along with a woman who can't possibly be as bad of a wedding guest as Damon Targaryen. It's Mallory Rubin. (laughs) What's up, everybody? Mallory, I I think that's a challenge. That's a dare. No, I've actually been to weddings with Mal, and she's absolutely delightful. I'm pretty mellow at a wedding, you know? You? You're just you're just a basket of sunshine, no matter where I just, you are. I sit there and I say to everyone, after tonight's small affair, seven <laughs> days of tournaments and feasting, you know? It's a promise of what's to come, always. What about Chris at a wedding? What's that like, Mallory? Chris is a great time. Yeah. I'd recommend everybody attend a wedding with Chris, and I'd recommend everybody watch Chris perform karaoke. <laughs> sublime we are not here to talk about my karaoke we are here to talk about the fifth episode of house of the dragon titled we light the way or better yet royal weddings gone wrong first (laughs) off for the two of you um thoughts and emotions after this episode that saw the union of lanor valerian and uh princess rhaenyra targaryen mal joe what was the most important thing that happened in this episode allison's fashion choice i think what do you think mallory i agree Allison showing up in the House High Tower has called the banners to war bright green, stealing the thunder from her, quote, stepdaughter, Rhaenyra, her ailing husband, the king, whose crown will shortly tumble off his head, and House Valerian in full and marching down the hall for all to see in that bright green, Jess. What's that called? Is that called? your color story what is that is that like the thing isn't there a thing like on instagram where people are like this is my color story or something was that is that what was basically allison was kicking i love to hear that you're an instagram girl chris and that <laughs> you, <laughs> i don't i genuinely don't know the answer i don't maybe i'm probably remembering <laughs> it wrong but i guess that was obviously this huge thing is she's wearing the color of the banners when the high towers go to war right and she shows up 30 minutes late interrupts viserys's big speech walks in, all eyes on her. Do all major families in Westeros have a I'm going to war dress? Or is it just is it just the high towers? So my my impression of what happened there is that the lovely creators of the show decided that Harwin and Lara Strong, the strong boys, were gonna play the role of Mallory and Joanna and like give some extra contextual commentary on her entrance here. And uh so I mean what's really true is that green is just House Hightower's color. Like, that's just their color. The the calling the banners to war part is sort of a Laris, Laris embellishment uh, to what's going on there. But it's still, she's making a statement. The late arrival is definitely part of it. And then, like, earlier in the episode, 
when Viserys is getting his like crumbling body attended to, and he says, "Where's the queen?" And Lionel says, "You know, it's my understanding she's otherwise occupied. Like that's unheard of before. Allison would come anytime the king beckoned. So she's, you know, she's making moves, making choices, saying no, saying yes on her timetable now. Always ready with with a loofah when he's taking a bath, <laughs> a nice sponge bath. She had seen him." collapse from her perch on the battlements and still chose to go meet with Kristen instead. This episode is called We Light the Way. Those are the house words of House Hightower. So you couple that episode name with the fashion statement, the conversation between Alicent and Hobart, House Hightower rising and greeting as she walked past the first rise, all of these little things. This is a big House Hightower declaration of intent episode. And obviously there's a fascinating exchange between Otto and his daughter as he's hitting the road in the downpour just an open horseback. Couldn't even get a carriage. Tough stuff for our guy Otto Hightower there. House Hightower kids send like a like an SUV or something. Yeah, he got locked out of his email immediately and didn't even get like... We're going to send you your shit in a box. Yeah, seriously. Yeah. Tony from HR is going to walk you to the door. Yeah. He's got a pamphlet for you. Um, a lot of other things happen in this episode. Shall I recap them? Let's do it. <laughs> okay. Uh, this episode starts with uh, Dame murdering a woman. Uh, shout out to Damon Targaryen. He uh, Every time you think you get to the basement with this dude, he... <laughs> He finds another sublevel. Uh, Damon Tardarian startles his uh, his wife's horse and then bludgeons her to death with a rock. Two questions: Who was this woman? Uh, and is her death off screen going to go right into the Stannis Baratheon is still alive uh, Hall of Fame of you know Game of Thrones takes? Because we just didn't see the actual deed being done. We can put a pin in both of those things because I want to talk about Damon in a bit. <laughs> Later on, on his way out the door, Otto explains to his daughter, Allison, that everything he has done has been to prevent an inevitable war that would follow Rhaenyra taking the throne and to stop Rhaenyra from killing Allison's son to solidify her claim. Allison's confidence in the kingdom is further shaken by an encounter with Laris Strong, who somehow knows basically everything about Rhaenyra, especially her late night tea consumption. <laughs> Viserys, uh -huh. desperately in need of Dramamine, takes Rhaenyra to the wedding. Uh, <laughs> where does he take? Is that Dragonstone he takes him to? Driftmark. Or to? Driftmark. Driftmark. High tide, yeah. the seat of Corlys and House Valerian. Takes Rhaenyra to Driftmark so they can make this wedding happen with Corlys's son. And after some quibbles over naming rights, they agree to make it happen. Meanwhile, Corlys's son and Rhaenyra make an agreement to basically have an open marriage. Uh, it turns out that this great compromise of a union doesn't really work for anyone. Not for Lenor, who is in love with another man. Not for Rhaenyra, who is at least in lust with another man. Not for Rhaenys, who worries that her son will get killed and that will have a target on his back. And not really for Viserys, who is pretty clearly dying and is about to go back to a wife. <laughs> is P mad at about at, at him about this whole thing? Allison oh tries to get confirmation from Kristen about this Rhaenyra affair rumor uh, with Damon, and instead finds out that it was Kristen who did the deed. Just uh, all-time unforced error own goal here. For, for sure. Own own Astonishing yeah. stuff. <laughs> A couple of OGs by my man Kristen this week. Uh, he seems to think that he's uh, dead set for some castration 
But Allison is too deep in her feelings to have him uh, gelded. So uh, she also might be merciful, as we'll see later in the episode. <laughs> At the dinner for the royal wedding, everything is going super well until the one-two punch of wife-murdering Damon and Allison, the latter of whom is apparently declaring war with her dress choice. There is a long-loaded dance <laughs> sequence. The C-word <laughs> finds a popularity among TV characters not seen since Deadwood. Damon remains the best thing about this show, and everyone seems to know who everyone else is sleeping with. Everything comes to a head when Joffrey Lawnmouth, shout out to that guy, uh, just a great Dion Waiters performance from him, tries to gossip with Sir Kristen <laughs> about being secret love lovers to the royal couple. Couple, It all pops off. Sir Kristen caves the dude's head in. I, right? A much more attractive version of a hound-type dude that needs to rescue Renera from this melee, all while Viserys seems to be bleeding from every orifice. Rhaenyra gets hitched, her dad collapses, and the rat from The Departed shows up again. The end, there are other things that have happened that we'll get into. But to that's... drink blood. The rat from The Departed showed up to drink blood. What's up with that? Vampire rat? Subtle closing, subtle closing shot Chris for this also episode. fueled by blood when he's writing and reading these recaps. Oh my goodness, what a performance. <laughs> Great stuff. I would say that my favorite thing that happened in this episode by far mm -hmm. was Damon's response to the guy being like, that was my cousin. He's like, it's literally, like, who are you? <laughs> literally, who are you? And also, by the way, I'm your landlord now. Yeah. <laughs> um, but let's start with Rhaenyra. Uh, now, we hear a lot about how the knives are going to be out for Rhaenyra if she becomes queen. But who exactly would oppose her? Because by the end of this episode, it certainly seems like it's Allison um, in some ways. But... I'm curious because all these banner, like all these houses have sort of sworn fealty to her, albeit maybe begrudgingly uh, after Dave, after Viserys named her the heir. But like when Otto is giving Alicent this, this warning and, and Renice is like, oh God, the knives will be out. Who are they talking about? To quote some of our favorite characters in Thrones history, including our guy Varys, the realm. Yeah. <laughs> Someone <laughs> must. That realm, man. This is actually one of the things that I liked most about the episode. The conversations between Otto and Alicent and Rhaenys and Corlys have such strong and overt parallels and harbingers of this doom that awaits in the future, even though these characters are not aligned with each other and thus are not looking at this from the same ambition, the same agenda, the same ultimate goal and endpoint, and yet they see the same eventuality. So you can look at what Otto says, this listen to me daughter plea. You can hear when Renice says to Corliss, we are placing our son in danger. And you can think back across the episodes Consider the sequence between Renice and Rhaenyra in episode two, where we hear this idea of the order of things and Rhaenyra really pushing back against that, balking at that. They rejected you, but they bent the knee to me. And Renice saying to her, here is the hard truth which no one else has the heart to tell you. Men would sooner put the realm to the torch than see a woman ascend the Iron Throne. So this is just the reality. And the fact that all of the characters see this looming. I think, Chris, like, it's not just who would challenge Rhaenyra. It's the fact that everyone will challenge each other. Because Otto, what he's saying to Allison is, think about your own children. If Rhaenyra is trying to secure her claim and her crown, she will have no choice. And the people who support her will have no choice but to eliminate them from the equation so that these other people who Renice and co. are talking about can't support them in challenge of her. So this is this inevitable doom that everyone sees. And if you couple that 
with the conversation between Viserys and Lionel, where Viserys is like, was I a good king? Am I a good king? What's my legacy? What am I leaving behind? And you think about like a great conversation between Tywin and Arya on Harrenhal in season two of Thrones, this idea that your legacy is what you pass on to your children and your children's children. It's what remains of you when you're gone. Well, then it doesn't matter what the current state of affairs is for Viserys and what he achieved. It matters what position he's leaving his children and his heirs in. And everybody around him is saying, this feels like it's going to reach a boiling point no matter what. And something we've talked about in House of R is the fact that George R. R. Martin based this story on a real 12th century civil war in England where the male monarch got all the lords in the land to swear fealty to his female, his daughter's female successor, made them swear it, I think, four different times, maybe, just to be sure. And then there still was a massive civil war anyway, because they're like, and we know we swore, but did we mean it? And, you know, and we saw we saw a couple people in that in that original swearing of fealty to Rhaenyra. We saw a couple people, noticeably Hobart Hightower, noticeably the Baratheon Lord, like, look really reluctant yeah, for when sure. they were taking the oath, you know? I, I want to keep keep on this topic of uh of of sort of the, this brewing civil war, this brewing civil unrest among these royal families. But I, I can we just talk about Damon for a second? Absolutely, please. please. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Matt's been really like we'll just show up for th- three scenes of these episodes, and each scene is just like the standout. So I guess my first question about Damon is, did he go back home with the express purpose of killing his wife? It certainly seemed like he did. What I love about this, and Mallory can agree or disagree with me, but I love how ambiguous they're making all these big moments for Damon. That's like the biggest thing is like they will cut away in a significant moment. We don't actually see him drop the rock on her head. We see it like cut away to someone's, you know, fish getting its head chopped off. In the book... Damon technically has an alibi for this moment, right? Yeah. The what it's, it, In the book, it says, a year later in 115 AC, there came a tragic mishap of the sort that shapes the destiny of the kingdoms. The bronze bitch of runestone, Lady Rhea Royce, fell from her horse whilst talking and cracked her skull upon a stone. And Damon is off fighting in the stepstones at the time. Right. And so... But me reading the book and feeling the way that I do about Damon, which is that I love him, but also he will do as much evil as he possibly can. I definitely read that as he definitely killed her. If he wasn't there, it's <laughs> too convenient for him yeah. that she's dead. So if he wasn't there himself, if he didn't zip over on his dragon, like he sent someone to do it. Someone put a burr in her saddle, something like that. So the fact that they placed him there yeah. is even more than what the book does, but they still cut away. He doesn't say anything in that scene. Once again, we get all these silent scenes with Damon. He barely says anything at the wedding either. You know, there's like a long stretch where he's just sitting sitting and looking. A big question, I think, for people was, how is it that Damon's going to be invited to the wedding after he was just banished the week before? Just shut up. And the answer is, <laughs> Viserys is just too weak to do anything about it, I guess. He's also got a dragon, which I guess is the ultimate <laughs> guest list pass. Yeah, right. Yeah, so I think... That's, I mean, Matt Smith's performance, the mystique that they're building up for this guy where he's he's not talking. So we get to fill in what we think he's thinking and what his motivations are and what's really going on with him. I think that's a big part of his draw. What do you think, Mallory? Well, Mal, I was going to ask you, my favorite part about this show maybe is how in almost every one of their scenes together, Rhaenyra is basically like saying to Damon, like, fucking do it. Like, you think you're so bad. Well, like, right. 
you know, on the bridge, she's just like, if you want to be king, you I'm just right have here. to kill me. Yeah. yeah. And then she basically wants to sleep with him when they're at the brothel and he leaves her. And then now at this and the dance floor, she's just like, go up and kill this old man right. who is literally falling to pieces. Kill everyone. Cut, and cut through take me yeah. away and let's go and let's see if you have it. And, you know, it's like his ex-wife or, you know, late wife says, it's like, <laughs> ex-wife? I, knew, I, I mean, that is a divorce in, in some parts of like this. Uh, <laughs> It's like his late wife says, I knew you couldn't finish. Right. Yeah. Not the subtlest scene in the history of our Westerosi programming when Lady Rhea is shouting, uh, calling him a craven and, and mocking him for not being able to finish. I did think that was particularly interesting, though, to Joe's point about this uh, room for interpretation, Damon not speaking, because I think there's a read on that initial scene where it's like, this is... We've talked a lot about how part of the appeal of the show and the appeal of this character set is the moral gray and how Damon is like most emblematic of the characters who live in the moral gray and why they're interesting to us for that reason. I really, I agree, Joe, that there's a lot of room for interpretation in that scene, specifically because Damon is not speaking. And so we don't know exactly what his initial intention was when he set out, exactly what's playing through his mind. But it is very clear that he feels, and this has become a through line, diminished by, in this case, Rhea, and in other cases, other characters, mocking his impotence to his face. Yeah. And so, like, for us to learn here from her that their their marriage was not consummated was a pretty big deal. And there's this through line of F&B, of fire and blood, that, that you know, people, it's a barren marriage because they haven't produced an heir. But once again... It seems that we have learned that Damon is not performing in the bedroom. And the fact that things that he has said before, like about the sheep in the veil, et cetera, have made their way back to her, everything spreads all the time. We're always reminded of the yeah, way this that is these whispers travel show. across the land. It absolutely <laughs> is. I've loved the Gossip Girl yeah. memes that have been making their way across Twitter. We also have all these moments like the the map of all the secret passageways in the red keep that Damon left for Rhaenyra last episode, or the fact that he took the dragon egg from the dragon pit. Like he's able to get in and out of places without detection. That's something we know about his character. So it's, I agree with Joe that I've always assumed that he showed up or said someone and was responsible for the death. I think there's a read of that scene where like, it's, it's so lacking in subtlety that like the Damon standing there with the, basically in his Hogwarts robes yet again and like just leering. I'm yeah. like, is this <laughs> skewing a touch too far into trying to make a character who's supposed to be embodying that moral gray just like a villain? But I do think it's an achievement that we then still feel pulled in to his web of charm. And when he and Rhaenyra are on the dance floor in plain view of everyone, once again conversing in Valerian, now a lot of people in that room in particular with the Targaryens and the Valerians would, would be able to understand them, but they continue to cocoon themselves in this little bubble. And Rhaenyra is one of the only characters who can challenge him without inciting some sort of rage in him. It's a, it's a really fascinating dynamic. But he still has his reactions to her. Like, you know, listening to the behind the scenes about the brothel scene, one thing that the director Claire Kilner said was that her being into it was part of what made him pull back. It's just sort of like he likes to be the one with the upper hand at all times. And Rhaenyra meeting him is attractive, but also not, you know, also pushes him the wrong way. And I think also what's really interesting is that we never meet Rhea Royce in the book. And they just they made the decision to make her 
kind of cool. She's kind of like an Arya type, you know? And so it, it, again, to Mal's point, it underlines everything that he, every shitty thing that he said about her. Yeah. He makes her sound yeah, like, she seems Oh great. my God. Like she'll <laughs> yeah. like, she's like Medusa. You can't even deal. And she's like, she seems like a pretty cool, cool lady. Yeah. You she's know? cool like, and hot. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. She's cool and hot and maybe like a little snarky with her cousin, but like not anything that Damon described her as. So I thought that was really, a really cool choice of the show as well. You mentioned the uh, the dancing scene with her, uh, with Rhaenyra and Damon. So I thought I would ask about this dance because um, it gets real crowded out there on the floor, like 1.45 a.m. New York City vibes. <laughs> and then something pops off. Because all we see is Kristen and Joffrey kind of, Joffrey kind of, you know, like letting Kristen know, I know you were with Rhaenyra. I'm with Lanor we have this obligation to one another, not only to protect them, but kind of also letting him know, like, keep our secrets. But we don't see the moment where Kristen just loses it, you know? And then all of a sudden, there's this scuffle, and Kristen is going full Joe, Joe Pesci, Goodfellas, on, on this guy. What was, what was that about? You know, was he, what, what do you think Kristen was really reacting to there? Was it that his spot was blown up, that he was now, like, so far away from being part of the King's guard and the sort of heroic oath that he had taken. And now he was being compromised left and right. Like what, what do you think was, was the inciting incident or does he just have a really bad temper? Something that uh, Fabian Frankel, who, who plays Kristen Cole has said in an interview was that this idea that, um, that Kristen is a thug and he just was sort of like covering his thuggishness this whole time. Uh, and then it's sort of in him. And what's really interesting in that scene where Joffrey comes over and plays his hand, incorrectly to Kristen Cole. There's this really interesting shot as he's walking away just to Kristen's hands that are sort of just like flexing. So I feel like, I mean, there's a lot of buildup. There's a scene with Rhaenyra and Kristen on the boat where he's like, you want me to be your whore? Like, that's what you want? And and her... I have a lot of feelings about that scene and what's going on in her head and her obligation and duty. But, you know, if if this is the equivalent of her, like of of Arya throwing rocks at her direwolf to get it to run away, her saying, like, you think I would go with you, that is a huge, you know, wound and indignity to him. This thing that we've been talking about, about his like upward mobility, how he's like the first member of the Cole family to go to college, essentially, like that this is like really, really important to him. And it's all been put on the line. And he 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 lays out the stakes to Alicent in that conversation in case folks at home don't know. Like, it's not just you're going to get fired. It's you're going to get gelded and sent to the wall or killed. Like, that's what's on the line for him. And I think also he doesn't know where Alicent got that information. He doesn't know that she got it from Laris. And he doesn't know that Joffrey, the world's greatest detective, figured it out just from like a few like, like glances on the glances, dance floor. I know. Yeah, exactly. So like, is he doesn't know if Rhaenyra is out there just like sort of gossiping about him and spread, you know, so like, I feel like all of that roiled up inside of him and also some of his own true nature that he had been sort of glossing over erupted out of him. Yeah, I guess that, that actor is probably too hot to like be like, oh, that what a thug. Like what a thug just like holding it <laughs> back. You know, it's like he definitely looks like like pretty handsome dude. So you're you're not thinking like, oh, underneath the surface there, though, he's just like unreconstructed thuggery. 
Incredibly handsome. I think we all agree on that. That's a pretty uncomplicated opinion that is probably held by everyone viewing the show. And would 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 that would that like would his behavior at that wedding be a deal breaker for you? Me personally, in terms of pursuing a relationship with Kristen Cole, with the fact that he removed a person's face at a a public gathering, uh, be a deal breaker Uh, for hate crime. Yeah, Yeah. I would say so. Mal, I just can't believe how fussy you're getting in your old age. You know that? You know, it's like, you know, I remember... <laughs> your standards. I remember Game of Thrones, Mallory Rubin would just be like, it only makes them hotter, you know? like. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. In, um, in Fire and Blood, Chris? Yeah? Kristen kills Joffrey. That happens. But very notably, he wounds him during a tournament. Is that under the same circumstances where Joffrey's like, by the way, I know that well, we that's, are both Well, that's what I was just going to say. We don't have, no, we don't have know. any insight in, okay. the, in Fire and Blood into that sort of exchange. Now, that doesn't mean it didn't happen because part of what we're gaining insight into the show is these firsthand direct accounts of what's passing between characters. Fire and Blood is constructed, as we've mentioned before, about th- through these unreliable narrator accounts, what people witnessed or heard or read in somebody's account. So maybe that happened and it never made its way back to people. But there's no cover of a tournament here regardless. Like Kristen Cole pursues Joffrey in the middle of the the welcome feast at the wedding ceremony the beginning of this week and murders him and is wailing and screeching and annihilating and, and turning his face into a total ruin. And I don't know how he or Alicent or anyone will be able to explain that away. Because if you hit your morning star into somebody's helm and crack their skull and it takes them six days to die, which is what happens in Fire and Blood, you say, hey, if you choose to enter the tournament, you understand what the risk is, even if there was something else motivating his rage sure. in that moment, right? So I will be really if fascinated to see- you want to catch over the middle- you know, that's what's going to happen. We're recording on an NFL Sunday. You know, I'll be fascinated to see if there's any explanation offered up. If Kristen tries to say, oh, I saw him uh, attack or uh, he was a threat to somebody. But even then, there's no justification for the extent of what he did. None at all. I got all. the impression that when he was on the verge of uh, opening up his own stomach, that he wasn't going to try and be like, it was provoked. But he stopped. And so he will move forward. Yeah. He didn't he yeah. didn't kill himself there. And so what will be the explanation offered up? Will there be one? I'll be really curious to see. I, I think what Joe said about the, the conversation between Rhaenyra and Kristen on the boat is like these scenes are inextricable from each other. Because when yeah. he says, I took an oath as a knight of the king's heart, an oath of chastity, I've broken it, I've soiled my white cloak, and he's in tears. There's no coming back already for him in his mind. And he has this. He, he makes this pitch to Rhaenyra about a love, a marriage for love, about escaping and being free. And I'm not saying that he doesn't feel that or doesn't believe that, but I think it is also equally true and a primary motivator for him as he says, I thought if we were married, I might be able to restore it, meaning his honor. Like this is the only path he sees left for regaining that standing and that stature that completely changed his life and his house's standing. So without that, what is he driven to? He tells Allison, please kill me. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So he doesn't see a way forward. And I fully believe that he would have killed himself in the gods, but if Allison hadn't showed up. And I think I do, to your point, Mallory, I think this is a slight flaw of the show because this was a big question we had last week was like, how is Damon going to show up to the wedding when he's just been exiled? And the answer was he just did. And a question I have going forward is we know from interviews that the showrunners have given that the big time jump is 
the next, next episode. Next episode. So we're getting a massive time jump. So I don't, I mean, I don't know that they're going to be like, I feel like they're going to yada yada over how it was yeah. that Chris and Cole was able to murder someone with his bare hands in public, someone important to the king consort, the future king consort, and stay in the game, you know? I'm sure that there is an answer to this in the text, and I don't want to spoil anything for our listeners nor myself, but it certainly seems like if I could pull one idea out of this whole episode, it's like that Allison is sort of becoming queen in all the ways that you kind of need to be if you're going to be in power in this world. And like, I think she starts to see the chessboard. I think she starts to move pieces around for herself. And what does she do? She goes and takes Rhaenyra's lover and closest bodyguard and shows him mercy, like sees him as a full person and is like, stop. Now we don't know what happens after that. But I kind of wanted to maybe pivot into the Allison conversation here because she's obviously a huge part of this episode. I was curious, and Joe, maybe you can tell me a little bit about this. Like it seemed like Allison, was she more hurt that Rhaenyra lied? Or was she more that, was it more that she now understood the level of duplicity that was sort of happening around her? Like, is she still hanging on to this idea that the two of them are friends? Or is it more that like, oh, what my dad said is true. All this shit is happening in secret passageways. Not only did she probably like still go out with Damon, but then she came home and hooked up with her uh, Kingsguard, like her bodyguard. And everything that I think in my sort of innocent nail-biting eyes is is like a lie. And like this place is like full of vipers. I think that's part of it. And it's part of, I mean, I think Otto really set the table for her there when he left. When he married her off to, to an old man. <laughs> <laughs> no, but like when he left, he said, um, you know, he basically laid it out to her that this was her fault. in And that in choosing Rhaenyra over him is the way he puts it she is directly responsible for him leaving and therefore directly responsible for placing herself at the palace all alone. She already mentioned last week that like, she feels like she has no friends. People just see her as the queen more than anything else. As bad as her father was to her, he was an ally that she could rely upon and he's gone. And then here comes my favorite Lara Strong up like up to her whispering in her ear. Can't wait to talk about this this guy. Okay. I mean, I cannot wait. But like he's underlining that aloneness to her and, and underlining this idea that like a game, both Otto and Laris, basically there's a game going on and you're not even playing it at all. And it's going on around you. And even Rhaenyra, who we've seen for years, Allison has been defending Rhaenyra, both to Rhaenyra's face and while Rhaenyra is not there. And for Rhaenyra to lie to her, to swear, as we talked last week on her mother's on her memory. Mother. Yeah. <laughs> and lie to her. So there's like hurt and betrayal is in there. But I think also just this idea of like, okay, grow up. Allison, mm-hmm. now is the time to like get get smart. What do you think, Mel? Yeah, I agree. I think all of these different threads fall into this tapestry of loss of innocence, right? And moving into this, but we we heard the showrunners talk. I believe it was the end of episode three about how that was like the child childhood's end episode for multiple characters, Allison or Nara Damon. I think really this is the end of of that for Allison because, or it's where she accepts and acknowledges and recognizes that truth and then moves forward and really grasps that agency. I think that we talked a lot last week, and so I won't rehash it here, but I think that Allison's views on like what she sincerely would think of Rhaenyra 
coupling with Damon at a brothel or Rhaenyra sleeping with Kristen. I think she genuinely would not approve of that. I think that the thing that though ultimately is the 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 nail in the coffin here of their their friendship is the lie because that that cements for Allison not only that she was being used but that other people think they can use her that they know they can lie to her and deceive her and make her a pawn in their game. And that if she doesn't want that to be true, she has to change that for herself. And so even in exchange, like I thought the conversation that she had with her, with, with Hobart Hightower was so fascinating because he, she, she, she thanks him for coming. And the first thing that he says is, I was worried that given leave of your father's shadow, you might wither in King's Landing's son. And I was like, what's up with this guy? This is a pretty weird thing and a very insulting thing to say to somebody. But that's, again, another acknowledgement of this very clear and visible reality that pretty much everyone sees about Allison's circumstance. And so then the fact that the next thing he says to her is, but you stood tall, know that Old Town stands with you. Like, that's an important thing that she has made a decision to say Okay, and we we talked so much about the dress choices earlier in the season, and I know we talked about it already in this episode, but I think we have to say one more thing, which is tracking the progression. Because now I look back on all her jokes about why was she in this one dress, and it's like she starts in this pale blue, right? This very innocent, childlike color. And she moves into wearing her mother's old gown on her father's orders. And then she spends multiple episodes in the colors of somebody else's house. House Targaryen red, House Targaryen black. The, the drapery of this marriage that she was ultimately guided into by somebody else's hand. And so moving into House Hightower's color of her own volition, when she is choosing not to go check on the king, not to go not to go spend time with him, interrupting his speech, drawing all eyes to her, like I don't think we can overstate the significance of, of what that represents. No, and, and Mal, I think that that's a crucial way of like watching the show is that like, I think for me, honestly, it's been a little bit of getting my head around like what what this show is doing rather than what it's not doing in relationship to to thrones and this is way more of like a comedy and tragedy of manners in the in in royalty rather than here are these people these sort of uh these castaways in in the world who will eventually rise and like lead it to its salvation you know it's like much more about these these very 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 highborn you know people who are following all these like social graces and breaking them at times and you know sometimes quite quite violently but I, I think it's easier now that like I've kind of seen the set these five episodes to kind of get my head around like what at least this version of the show is doing it could change as like that new actors come in and everything but it's it's kind of an interesting lens to watch watch the show through. Yeah. And I think I think this is like the opposite of the point we were making earlier about how the time jumps are really kind of wonky and like the, th- the the moments that we're missing in between actually are like to the show's detriment quite often. I think, Chris, the point you're making is the the inverse of that, which is the show has been really expert at using set design and character positionings and those sorts of choices to tell us something significant. Like we talked last week about how Viserys was using Blackfire, the ancestral sword of Aegon the Conqueror, as a walking stick. What about when Viserys walks in and Corlys is sitting in the chair? This is what I was just going to say. Corlys not greeting Viserys in the yard, making Viserys coughing, ailing, pallid, feeble, visibly infirmed, walk to him into his hall in high tide where Corlys is sitting on the driftwood throne. And then 
that throne comes into into play again because Rain, they position Rhaenys, the queen who never was, in front of it. Now, when they're talking, when when Corlys is asking for the details, just some details on the succession and will these children carry their father's name, the queen who never was, she's not standing in front of the Iron Throne, but still, it's the symbol of power and a seat of might. And all of those things, I think the show has done quite well. It's just those moments that we're missing in between that I think we're going to have a couple more episodes of needing to navigate before we <laughs> slow down. I love that moment when Renice is standing by the, the Driftwood throne and Viserys, Viserys says, like, surely um, you wouldn't end the Targaryen line simply because my daughter is a woman. And the look that Rhaenys gives is priceless because she's like, oh, now we care about women's rights in Westeros? Sure. And I think also, like, to your point about comedy, uh, comedy of errors and comedy of manners, like, the the contrast between Rhaenyra and Alicent throughout the show and specifically at this wedding, Jason Lannister, that total douchebag, comes up to, you know, the, the table and is talking and Rhaenyra she is so eyes. rude. Yeah. She's rolling her eyes right in front of him. Meanwhile, Alicent walks over to her uncle, to the Hightower clan, and is making allies and friends. So mm-hmm. Rhaenyra is just like making enemies left and right. And Allison is, and has been all along. We saw it at the hunt with the ladies that are around her at the hunt, making friends. Rhaenyra is making enemies. And that's just, you know, the game is already afoot here in these early days. Yeah, I mean, I thought that you're, that's a really great point, Joe. Because like the, Rhaenyra's behavior throughout that wedding celebration, that that dinner is pretty childish. You know, she's just like, it's my wedding to this guy. I'm not going to really make much of an effort to make it seem like this is this great, romantic, powerful pairing. And then the most erotic moment of the wedding is me with my uncle. Like, you know, like, is me with this guy who is essentially like the whole realm knows is a murderer and we're going to flirt on on the dance floor and only be interrupted by my other boyfriend killing someone. So she's a hot mess, you know? And, and that is, that is really like, it'll be fascinating to watch whether or not they, how they chart Allison and Rhaenyra, especially once different, different performers are playing those roles. I wanted to ask a little bit about Laris because I was like, Oh, this guy's interesting when he pops up at the, at the, what was it? The naming festival. And like, he's just like, I can't hunt. Yeah. 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 Uh, and then his his character kind of comes to fruition in, in this episode. I thought that was a great scene of him, you know, just sort of slowly picking at the scab on Allison until finally he spun her out totally and like making himself uh, an ally to her while also like accruing a lot of information for himself. Is Laris trying to destabilize his father because his father obviously treats him like shit because he's not able to fulfill like a lot of sort of manly duties, I guess, in, in this world? Or is he just an ambitious political operator? I think this has everything to do with how Laris is working Alicent. And I'll, I'll say something that might surprise you both here. I didn't really like this scene. I thought this was really like... It's my favorite scene. <laughs> I'm not surprised. And I, I, Joe, I, we both, you know, really like Laris and I was excited to see him enter the show. And I think that it's a scene that I'll probably enjoy more on subsequent watches. I don't I don't know that this is even a fair critique. It just felt like they were so overtly trying to capture Littlefinger energy in this scene. And like I 
I think it would not be like truthful or, or in good faith to say that Littlefinger always acted with great nuance and subtlety. He did not. Like he literally would just face off with Cersei in the courtyard and say, uh, yeah, when brothers and sisters fuck, that could be really awkward. So it's not like Littlefinger's scenes weren't laying it on thick too, but something about the way that Laris was so clearly trying to work Alicent in a way that not only the audience, but Alicent herself could not fail to miss or ignore. Like, I want, I'm delighted to have my schemer in the show. Yes. So the scene is is ultimately successful in, in that respect. But I want my, my schemers to be operating with a bit more care so that it's harder to detect exactly what they're trying to do. Now, Ultimately, though, he achieves his end. He sets into course uh, uh, everything that he's trying to do. He 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 plants these seeds of doubt in Allison's mind with his reveal about the tea that Rhaenyra is deceiving her, and everything that follows with Allison's conversation with Kristen and beyond comes from this moment. So, Laris is a character we need to take seriously, and they they uh, establish that well. And I like his you know opening conversation about the floor on fauna. <laughs> Landing. It's a metaphor for how Allison herself should not be thriving, but somehow is. But for him to just actually say out loud, like, you need an ally, I just, I thought was like a degree off. Well, I think there's also an element of it. I thought it was a well-performed scene. I thought that the actor who plays Laris is good. I just... He wasn't leering just a touch too much. Well, I mean, (laughs) but like, that's like... I think that, yes, I think he was definitely doing like the like, I'm walking beside you, but also trying to like stick my head around in front of you so that I can see your facial expressions. (laughs) If I had any issues with it, it was more just like a little bit of like, so you have super ears, like you just know all this stuff, you you and you know all the details and all the nuances of what that happened. part I liked though Without, because he I says, do, but I, but like if how? you're not asked to speak, you've got to observe, you have to listen, and like so they just saw, don't have they don't have HIPAA in Westeros, huh? Like we're not we're not like. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is what we said last week that that tea was like a test, right? That w- what no matter what like was going to tell in some respect. If Rhaenyra drinks it, then word travels, et cetera. So the thing, yeah, the thing that I would say about Laris is that we already, I like that they already seeded into the episode with the hunt that he has a way of insinuating himself and listening and observing in places where he doesn't even belong, you know, that he's just like, oh, Poor me, I can't participate in the hunt. Can I sit here with these ladies? And then it's just information gathering while he's doing that, right? And so there, are, there's many ways in which he could do that around the castle and just be like, oh, you know, my poor foot, I just need to sit here and listen to the servants gossip or something like that. Um, and I, I hear what you're saying, Mallory. I'm not entirely disagreeing. I think, again, I would, I would argue that's a function of the compressed timeline where they're like, we're not given many scenes of Laris like working. He gets one scene to shoot his shot here. You know what totally. I mean? If we had had more exposure to him, this would just feel like the, the, the natural culmination of his plotting as opposed to like our first real time with him. And he's making his, he's making his move, but instead it's like, oh, this guy just popped out of every, nowhere and knows everything and like lands his like three pointer from the first attempt. Yeah. <laughs> and, and similarly, I think that um, Harwin Strong, who's his brother, who gets at least a little bit more screen time in this episode, but like not they're enough, not, Joanna, they're not laying enough track. I think with is he him the guy who breaks and, up the fight? 
Yeah. yeah. And like what? Lionel, so so that's Laris's brother, Breakbones, the, uh, aka the strongest like man in Westeros is what he's supposed to be. And his father, Lionel Strong, gives him a little nod to be like, hey man, go take care of this. And he's uh, like, sure thing. He, he lets that fight go for like a minute and a half though before he's like, all right, now you can go break it up. So I was wondering about that. Like was go Lionel get like- Go is what yeah. he says, you know, basically. Yeah. I have always loved the contrast between Harwin Strong, Strong of Body, and Lara Strong, the like, you know, the 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 archetype that George R. R. Martin loves, the like Tyrion, the Richard the Third character who needs to like compensate for the ways in which people underestimate him by being cunning and smart and smarter than anyone else in the room. And I also like, if we're gonna talk about um English monarchs, <laughs> can we talk about the deterioration of Viserys? Is that what you want to that talk about? That was what about was coming next? up next. Yeah. Excellent. Hit me, hit me yeah, with yeah. that. I want to hear about it. Well, our guy's in a tough spot here. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I mean, things are grim. I am not a doctor, <laughs> <laughs> but I think we are ending the, the. We were nearing the end of the road with Patty here, like you know, just in terms of like I don't know how many more pieces of him can fall off. I don't know how many <laughs> more liquids can spill out of him. You know, he's barfing, he's bleeding. People are handshaking him, and there's nothing there. You it's know, just like, recoiling in pain when Renice grasps his hand. His wife has pretty much abandoned him. You know what I mean? Just like he's feebly a, trying to cut some quail and saying "fuck oh it" and like God. tearing it with his hands. Yes, yeah. I um, love that because it made me think of of Jamie and Brienne and and yes. Roose and the failing at dinner, <laughs> meat yeah. cutting. Yeah. I was curious because you know he's obviously in in, and we talked a little bit about this. He's in legacy legacy building mode. He's just sort of thinking like, what was this all about? And I was curious whether or not what, because I mean, we don't really see a lot of like what's going on outside these castle walls. Like what's the world like right now? Is the, is it a time of peace? Is it a time of prosperity? Like, or is it, we're all just kind of like scared of these dragons and they keep us in line or what? But you know, there's this big thing in Arthurian myth, you know, about the land and the king are one that like the, the land sort of thrives as the king does, and as the king is is uh, sick, you know, in the case of Arthur, until he gets the grail, right? If I'm remembering it correctly. Like, the land is sick, and that's the, you know, the plague is hitting. And I was wondering whether or not there was any, like, in the text, examples of this was also a tough time for Westeros, you know? Or if, if everything is going fine, and everybody's just psyched for this royal wedding. I think um, Mallory might have a few um, a few other details, but I think the best information we have in the show is early on when they mentioned that like King's Landing is in a sham. Crime is up. Oh yeah, in King's Landing, and this is why Damon and the Gold Cloaks have to crack down and right. geld people That's in the street. Right. George R. Martin loves a gelding. You know what I mean. So we're gelding people in the street. Wheelbarrows full of body parts. <laughs> fine but yeah the the tough on crime attitude is because Viserys like he's he's just an absent king I think what's true and so what that means more than like is the countryside ailing is everything going to shit in King's Landing etc is that the office of the king or the office of the monarch loses meaning if your monarch is literally not present for anything which is sort of my idea of Viserys is that he's just holed up in his room getting you know his wounds swabbed. Sidebar, <laughs> what's the worst job? Like wound swabber to the king or or puke bucket holder on the ship to the king. Like, which is the worst job? But like, um, that he's not, he's effectively not ruling. He's not going to war when he needs to go to war. And so it just undermines in general 
the importance of the monarchy. That's that's my take. What do you think, Mallory? Yeah, I think that's that's exactly right. And we've had a lot of lines, as you noted, throughout the episode so far about the state of the kingdom, but also more broadly about the fact that Viserys' reign invites challenge, which I think is the greatest indictment that you could have, that anybody would deign to, to say, you are weak. Like, even if they think it, the fact that they would express it. And so I... I the this the scene between Viserys and Lionel Strong as 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 Viserys's rotting arm is on full view, I thought was an exceptional scene, one of my favorite of the the season to date. But I I don't think we can overstate the significance of Cor- of what Corliss chose to say to him. Not only what we already talked about, how he greets him. But what Joe mentioned, like the <laughs> are you really suggesting this? Corliss says later to Rhaenys, did I, did I go too far? Did I, but the thing did is, I, he, he didn't. Because yeah. Vis- Viserys, he pushes back just enough to say, okay, they'll have the name Valerian. They'll carry their father's name. And then whoever takes the throne will, of course, be a Targaryen because my dynasty is not going to end. All the chat that we've heard for a couple episodes about dragons ruling for like a hundred more years. There's a version of of a ruler in House Targaryen who beheads the person who would even consider suggesting something like that to them, not just agree to a pact, come to terms immediately thereafter. So Viserys is in a position where he needs to mend. He had to go to him. It's crazy. Yeah. And, and Renée says it, right? Like Viserys embarrassed himself by, by sailing here to ask this of us. While she's washing her hands after touching him. I gotta like, say I'm so that. happy to have Corliss and Radies back. I've missed them. Mm-hmm. It was a delight to spend time in high tide. What a seat. Wonderful to be on Driftmark. Here's Joe, it's a crucial thing, though hand washing. Yeah. But the problem with that is, is now I have to ask, does anyone wash their hands in any other situation in Game of Thrones? Because <laughs> <No. laughs> it's, it's the just first hand washing I remember. <laughs> Never forget Roz's uh, water basin as she's oh, listening right. to Pycelle say the, the thing about kings, you know? That's a <laughs> great moment in Westerosi washing. If I had, uh, you know, I think Mallory, Mallory uh, has her criticism of the Larry scene. Here's my biggest criticism of the episode. We get, and I don't know if you could tell Chris, but we got a new dragon. I was just going to ask if we Chris got, noticed the new dragon. <laughs> we got, so like, w- uh, what I think the is red key queen. is Viserys is talking and he's talking about his legacy and then it cuts to two dragons in the sky, a dragon screech and two dragons in the sky. And we've talked so much about how Viserys doesn't have a dragon and how that makes him like such a weak Targaryen by comparison. It's Laenor on Sea Smoke, which we already saw the Battle of Stepstones. And then Rhaenys herself on her dragon, Maelys. But I don't know that anyone at home could necessarily know that that's know what that. they were looking at because there's no establishing shot I honestly, I of thought that it was Rhaenyra. I thought it was Rhaenyra and Laenor having like a sort of newly sure. red ride out. Yeah. And ju- I mean, like, <laughs> Mallory's smirking because the dragons are different colors, but it's honestly, who could blame you? Colors. But who could blame you? Melis is red. That's why she's called the Red Queen. Scarlet Scales. Mallory, you have to admit that the show did a really bad job of this. This was, I, I, this was one of my points as well, because, or one of my critiques as well, because especially given that Corliss says, like, it's one of the things that they're debriefing on, you know, who would dare to, because Renice is concerned about what this marriage pact will mean for Lenor and putting putting him in risk, putting their house at risk. And 
Corliss says we've got, you know, not only this fleet, we control the Navy, but we've got half the dragons. dragons. That's an incredibly important thing to say in a show called The House of the Dragon that has done not a great job of actually giving us the origin stories of pairing the dragons and the dragon riders. So there's a lot of just fun Melis and and Rainey's history with her arriving to her own wedding on that dragon. And so riding the dragons into King's Landing is, yeah, the show of strength. And I agree it would have been important and really cool to like actually tell us definitively what was happening there, given how much emphasis they are putting on the dragons that they control. So am I to believe, and first of all, Allison is not there when they actually tie the knot, right? Did I miss that? She's there. She is She's there. there. Okay. Yeah. Am I to understand that that was a rush job because there was a homicide at their party? and that It was they were supposed like, to be seven days of feasting and, and tourneys. And instead they're like, quickie wedding, don't even bother to clean up the puddle of blood on the floor. Lanor we'll is like dabbing that. his bleeding nose still. <laughs> and I mean, this is what, immediate. So what's the urgency? Is it because if they don't do this fast, Viserys is going to die and there will be this empty, you know, like this moment where like, who's who's going to take power? Or is it because there's obviously some security issues within, <laughs> within this party? We need to like get like, was it almost like a secret service kind of thing? Or was it, what 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 prompted the, the urgency there? I don't know. I just felt like it was get this done. This was such a mess. What a disaster. But but let's get this done before anyone changes their mind. Maybe it's before the Valarians change their mind. Let's just get this done. Because Rhaenys is like, we're putting a target on our son's back. And what happens at the feast? And Kristen punches like, him in the face and then two randos yeah. hurl him into a table. Right. As and, his, his, and his lover dies on the floor. You know, it's like, yeah. I think that's it too. They just had to get it done immediately before anything else that's terrible could happen. But it connects to your larger question, Chris, about Viserys' state and, like, how he's thinking about the future. I I was struck by, like, what he said to Lionel about it hardly makes a good song, does it? Like, it made me... It felt very much like the, the sister scene to his conversation with Alicent in episode three in front of the bonfire where he's talking about dragon dreams and the power of prophecy against the power of dragons and how badly he wanted it to be true. Like he really wants to be a good king and a king who is remembered. And he says here, you know, there's part of me that wishes I'd been tested. I often think that in the crucible, I may have been forged a different man. As as is repeatedly the case, Lionel has very sage counsel in response to that. Like usually the people who are tested wish they hadn't been. But I thought especially given the way the showrunners had described the Stepstones battle for Damon as like this anvil in which his character was forged, that was really notable language. That Viserys is so keenly aware, and this connects again to Corliss and that conversation, that great conversation from episode two about not waiting for the storm. This is the recurring thing with Viserys. He waits and waits and waits, and then he has no choice but to act impulsively and reactively to whatever new horror has unfolded in front of him. But I want to ask you, Mallory, because in this episode, Rainey says he, Viserys chose to sail into that tempest. Yes. I thought such weird language when they've been like criticizing him for not sailing into a tempest, and then he does so, and Rainey's is like, what a weak-ass move of his, you know? <laughs> well, I guess if you're sailing into the tempest that the storm is already there and you've awaited it's coming. Yeah, it's a good point. <laughs> well, I, I just don't feel like Viserys has a lot of longevity uh, after what we saw. There's obviously some ambiguity about whether or not 
Some debate about his breaths. medical care. Some some purple polstice talk versus some leech talk, Chris. Which camp are you in? You in polstice camp or leech camp? <laughs> just want to give those polstices a try? <laughs> are you trying to reopen the are the Macers actually trying to kill Versarius conversation? Is that a is that a conspiracy? I I mean, that's what we talked about before, this sort of Grand Maester conspiracy. Like, you know, right. is he leeching him to death or not? We don't know. It seems strange that they they did not have like a better a better treatment plan for this, you know. And also just like Patty Considine is the one kind of diagnosing Viserys, but like in the show, they're just like, oh God, this guy's body's just falling off. That's okay. So that's the other English monarch I actually want to talk about was Henry the Fourth had this skin condition where yeah. like basically his, his like body parts just kept falling off until he was done. So I don't know if they're trying to do something like that. But yeah, you we had talked offline uh, or outside of this podcast about this interview that Patty Constantine gave where he said he diagnosed Viserys with leprosy, like a symbolic leprosy, but I guess not a catching leprosy because like Allison doesn't have it. I don't really, it's a, it's a particular Westerosi strain of leprosy, I guess, but like this is not quite what's happening in the book. In the book, he's just getting like cut by the throne in the way that we mentioned before. So this is a show invention situation, a fun challenge for the makeup department to be sure. Um, <laughs> it's gross. It's really disgusting. <laughs> I don't have anything else. I think we wrapped it all up really nicely in a bow. Uh, I feel like the show is going to change pretty uh, drastically in the, in the next week. I'm sad to say goodbye to our young cast here. It's what a, what a wonderful five episodes it's been, but I'm so excited to welcome our new so cast. Excited. <laughs> I yeah. wonder what this, I, you know, so I, I it, do I find my foot tapping a little bit sometimes being like, let's, let's, let's speed things up a little bit. I do. I do wonder what would have happened if these first six, five episodes were the first 10 episodes and that they had expanded yeah. and filled in some of the blanks yeah. and and not done the time jumping. I'm sure they would they were concerned that just simply not enough exciting shit happens here. But if you had made... And they tried to make Crap Vader into Darth Vader there for a few minutes. So like I think that they were <laughs> oh trying God. to build up dramatic tension. But I do wonder whether or not not could they do it again would they have done it differently but if it was like 10 episodes of these younger women before they become who they're going to become and this is like all the sort of preamble but goes in the first season yeah i'm sure some people would have been like did we have to spend this much time like finding out about this guy or that person but on the other hand you know I, it seems like we've come out of this period and be like oh i would have liked to have known how laris came across all this information yes. you know and that kind of that kind of thing I am anticipating. I have not seen the next episode. I have no it, idea it, what's going to happen. But given what we know, what has been widely reported, and we haven't seen about, scenes from next week either. No, we have not, because right, we, that's not included in the screener. Given what's widely reported about the time jump to come, as Joe already mentioned, I am anticipating, even if it is a great episode, just in a vacuum as an episode of TV, which I think it will be. I am anticipating a real period of of acclim of reacclimation where we're like wow what is what is all this stuff that happened that we missed and that that takes some real getting used to but then ultimately that will settle into the new pace of the show i am like i don't know why but it's i'm, I'm so jump. bizarrely def defensive of emma darcy and uh, olivia Cook who are coming in because um all i'm hearing is how much people are going to miss these young women who are doing such a great job but Olivia and Emma were cast first, and these young women were cast to play their younger versions. And so I, I'm like, I'm frustrated. By I also the, think Olivia Cook is awesome. I haven't seen a lot of Emma Darcy stuff. But Olivia Cook's yeah, great. I think it's gonna. I, I think they're gonna I, kill I, it. I think they're, I think gonna they're be absolutely really good. gonna kill it. 
Yeah. yeah. Um, well, until next week, where I'm sure we'll have a ton of talk to talk about. Joanna, Mal, it was great chatting with you today. We were produced, as always, by Steve Allman. You can listen to Joanna and Mallory on House of R on Tuesdays, their deep dive. You can listen to Andy and I this week on Monday. We will be talking about House of the Dragon, but we are also covering the industry season finale and uh, the premiere of Atlanta. So, you know, full, full watch, but some, some dragon talk for sure. It was wonderful to chat with you, too. I can't wait to hear you and Andy talk about all the oranges and cinnamon on those ships to Essos. Oh, I thought that there was like <laughs> oranges and cinnamon in the finale of, of uh, industry. I was like, oh, my gosh. I mean, there might Exciting. be, you know. <laughs> uh, talk to you next week. <laughs>